The victim's impact statement is just beautifully written, elegantly written. I don't think that it avoids the fact that she had a blackout. She didn't remember things, and she knew that. A lot of the more affecting details are towards the end, where she talks about what it was like to hear him describe it. Because I think she heard either in trial or through transcripts or through news stories. See, that was always very painful to me. I thought she was learning about what happened through the media. It's very upsetting. She learned several details about this by reading stories. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is writer Sarah Heppala. Sarah has been publishing personal essays and articles for decades. She's been an editor at Salon, and she's the author of the 2015 bestseller, Blackout, The Things I Drank to Forget. That's a memoir about her years of heavy drinking, focusing on the phenomenon of blackout, a state of impaired memory that, as she explains, is distinct from passing out and is often overlooked in conversations about things people do when they're drunk. I invited her on the show initially not to talk about that, but about a recent essay she published in The Atlantic called The Things I'm Afraid to Write About. That piece is about censorship, specifically the kind we impose on ourselves in a culture where voicing controversial opinions can result in career-destroying punishments handed down through social media and or the loss of friendships or collegial relationships. Now, a lot of people have been talking about this kind of thing lately, myself very much included, but Sarah comes to the subject out of a very particular interest, and that is the role that alcohol plays in sexual consent and how confusion over the difference between being in a blackout and being unconscious has factored into several high-profile sexual assault cases, a few of which she mentions in her article. Now, as you know, I don't usually do a lot of talking at the top of episodes on this podcast, but I'm going to spend about five minutes offering some context for this conversation. If you want to skip ahead to the interview, you can, though I'd encourage you to stay with me here. Okay, so one case Sarah mentions is the case of Brock Turner, the Stanford swimmer who was convicted in 2016 of sexual assault. Now, this case was notable for several reasons, among them that the victim, who was 22 at the time, Brock Turner was 19 at the time, issued an impact statement that was leaked to the media, published in the media, went viral, and she later published a best-selling memoir about the effect the incident had on her life. By then, she had gone public with her name, Chanel Miller. I'm telling you all of this because most of the negative reaction to Sarah's essay had to do with Sarah pointing out that Miller, by her own admission, doesn't remember what happened. And eyewitnesses, for all their vivid descriptions of a few moments in time, don't have anything near the whole story. Now, for the record, and we say this in the interview, but I want to make it very clear, Brock Turner's DNA was never found on Miller. This was not a rape case in the way most people understand rape. But Miller's powerful words about the pain she experienced, along with a handful of memorable details about the event, 
led to a media narrative that veered significantly from the public record. So much so that when the judge in the case imposed a sentence that was in line with the probation officer's recommendation, and that was six months uh, plus a lifetime on the sex offender registry, six months in jail, this was seen as egregiously lenient. And an initiative was launched to recall the judge from the bench, and he was indeed removed. I know this is a lot to go into in an introduction to a conversation about an essay, about being afraid to write essays, but it's important to have this context to understand the part it played in the essay and why we're going to talk about the case at such great length here. I also want to say that after this conversation, I read Chanel Miller's memoir. It's called Know My Name. I thought it was beautifully written and that she does a really impressive job of showing how trauma can reverberate and even kind of replicate itself around an event, even if the trauma survivor will never know the full details of that event. As such, it's not the final word about the case. It's not intended to be. The third sentence of the book is this. This is not the ultimate truth, but it is mine told to the best of my ability. I'll also say throughout the book that Miller uses blackout and passed out fairly interchangeably. At least that was my reading, and I read the book carefully. That is why I think this conversation with Sarah is important, and moreover, why I think that writers like Sarah, who can make unique contributions to public understanding of confusing topics, should not be afraid to speak out. And that is what her essay is about, and that is why she's on the podcast. So here is our conversation. Sarah Heppola, welcome to The Unspeakable. I'm so glad to be here. You have been writing for a long time, a couple decades now. Is that right? Something like it's that? It's like 20, 25 years. Yeah. So in you've this been. Godforsaken industry. Yeah, yeah. You've been part of the cultural mix as an essayist, as a long form journalist. You've been an editor. You've written for places like the New York Times Magazine, The Guardian. You're a writer at large at Texas Monthly now. You published a best selling book, Blackout, um, a memoir. You took some real risks in that book, and we're going to talk about how and why. But recently, you published uh, arguably the riskiest piece of your life. It, it appeared in The Atlantic magazine. It's called The Things I'm Afraid to Write About. So before you tell us what those things are, tell us why you wrote this piece. I had spent about five or six years with a lot of things on my mind. And I wasn't really speaking them. This is actually just true of everybody in society, right? There's a lot of things I didn't say. But unique in my situation was that I had positioned myself as a writer that would sort of say anything. And brutal honesty or compassionate honesty, as I like to think of it, was really my brand. And I would do events, you know, for my book, Blackout, which came out in 2015. And then again in 2016, at a time when a lot of these issues that I talk about were exploding and people would say to me afterward, you just, you can say anything. Like you just really lay it out there. And I was always thinking in the back of my head, like, no, not really. I didn't because there were a lot of things I wasn't talking about because I thought that it would be unwise. In particular, there was 
an event that exploded right as the paperback of my book came out. It was the Brock Turner incident that I know we're going to talk about later. So I don't want to spend too much time talking about that now. But it really came out when I was literally on book tour. I was getting calls from the New York Times and other places to write about it. I wouldn't touch it because the story was so explosive. It was so controversial. I had a unique vantage point as somebody that had written and experienced blackouts. But I really, really didn't want to get into this story. I had taken my own risks, told my own story. I really didn't want to step into someone else's. So I didn't. And, you know, basically over the years, I just was having repeatedly conversations that began. I wouldn't tell anybody else this. I wouldn't say this out there. Out there always being sort of this like capital O, capital T, you know, the scary beyond. We're just going to keep it between us. And I really didn't feel like I was honest. And at some point last year, I really had kind of a breakdown in my own career. I just couldn't get anything done. I think I was so clogged up. And a lot of this is about my own people pleasing, my need to please everyone when the world is unpleasable. And, you know, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine that was one of my, you know, let's talk about things we don't tell to other people. We had a long conversation. She kind of gave me a dose of inspiration that I should start writing. The next morning I woke up and I wrote it. And that was in January. I actually had envisioned it as like a beginning of the year piece. But of course, it didn't run until March. Right. As as these things go. Okay. So before we talk about the piece itself, um, let's explain why people were calling you with regard to Brock Turner. Your book, Blackout, it's about, it's about your period where you were a drinker. You're now sober. Um, and the particular way that you experienced drunkenness, which is that you had blackouts. So explain sort of what that book is about and what your perspective is around these issues. So the book is about how I fell in love with alcohol and why I had to walk away from it. I've been sober about 11 years. But each of these books that drops into the giant ocean of addiction memoirs has to have a little bit of an angle because the stories are really all the same. And my angle and my particular affliction was that I was a blackout drinker. And what I discovered through reporting and then talking about the book, because I did a small amount of reporting in a larger memoir that was really about my own story, was that I didn't know about blackouts, even though I had them since the age of 11, believe it or not, but that most people didn't know about blackouts, that the public, the court system, police, they didn't, people, drinkers, they didn't know what blackouts were. And so there's a chapter in my book where I contacted one of the leading blackout experts. He did some of the pioneering research in the field that didn't happen until the 21st century. There's complicated reasons for why that's the case. But anyway, what he found in his research at Duke University was that about 50% of the drinkers at Duke were having blackouts. But a lot of times they didn't even know that they were. And so it was very important in this book to explain what a blackout was and also why they're so badly misunderstood. So I'm just going to do that now, if that's okay. Yes, please. Okay, cool. So a blackout is basically alcohol-induced amnesia. The most common confusion is that it gets conflated with passing out. 
Passing out is when you've drank so much, you just fall asleep and you're unconscious. But in a blackout, you actually are conscious, even though later you won't remember it. It's a very weird state. You're able to walk and talk and interact with people, but later you won't be able to remember it. What happens and, and I can talk, I don't know how much we want to talk about how blackouts work. Basically, it comes from a spike in the blood alcohol content. So fast drinking, drinking on an empty stomach, what the kids call pre-gaming, it's a real risk factor for blackout. Also being small, which I am, and also being female. And so I realized that I was the poster child for blackout, and I had no idea. And so a blackout, basically, there are two different kinds. There's there's a kind called fragmentary blackouts, which is much more common. I think of it like a light flickering on and off in a dark room. You can remember parts of an evening, but not all of them. And then there's another kind. It's much more dramatic. It's more rare. And it's the kind that I had, which are called en bloc blackouts. It's a French word, E-N-B-L-O-C. And it means that you lose large swaths of time. And just so you, your your listeners know because I think it's really valuable. What happens is basically your blood alcohol reaches a certain level and the hippocampus is disabled in the brain. The hippocampus is what transfers memories from short-term storage to long-term storage. So you're able to have these conversations. You know where you lived. You know how to tie your shoe. You know how to fly a plane. And there's reports of people doing surgery and blackouts. But later, you won't have any memory of it. And for you as the person that wakes up knowing that swaths of time are missing, you really can't know if you lost 10 minutes, if you lost two hours. In my own life, what would happen is that I would wake up thinking everything was fine. And then someone would pull me aside and be like, hey, do you remember what happened last night? And I'd be like, oh, shit. Because I knew I'd had a blackout. And... So and what were the kinds of things that were happening? Just so we have a sense, just briefly. When I was in a blackout? Yeah. That's a great question. I was doing anything from singing karaoke, taking off my top. I had a weird way of mooning people. That was really embarrassing. I had what I call bad nudity, which is like when you like nobody wants it. Everybody's like, put it away, put it away. It's a really, really dark place to be a blackout drinker. It's a helplessness that I think is very hard to convey to people that don't have blackouts. They don't understand how it is that you couldn't remember something you did. And frankly, you don't understand it either. Yeah. And, and I also think people as assume or just imagine that a blackout, like somebody's kind of walking around like a zombie, like it's sleepwalking exactly. or something like that. But you're saying you can you can just seem completely normal. Someone can have absolutely no idea that you're even drunk. Is that? Well, much like drinking itself, it really depends on the individual because some people are completely loaded and they're very high functioning and never misspell a text message. And some people can have three drinks and they're under the table. Usually I was pretty functional. In other words, later people would think that I remembered it, but I didn't. Like I'd have a fight with my boyfriend and he'd be mad at me the next day and I'd have to pull out of him and he'd be like, damn it, were you in a blackout? And I'm like, yes, sorry. My boyfriend in particular learned that there was a very vacant look in my eye. He called it looking like nobody was home, an unplugged look. 
And that really is one of the telltale signs of blackout. But you have to know the person. And I think central to these stories, you have to be pretty sober to see it. And usually in these environments, at least the ones that were in my life and that I talk to people who read my book and when I go to college campuses, it's a bunch of drunk people. So drunk people don't tend to know that other people are slurring, other people are stumbling, and they often don't know that somebody might have a really creepy blackout look. Now, I'll tell you the biggest tell of blackout that everyone should know is when you repeat something you said about two minutes ago. And most people are familiar with this from talking to drunk people, that you talk to them about something, they seem totally fine, and then suddenly they repeat something they've said. And you're like, were you not having that conversation? That person is usually in a blackout. And it's one of the few red flags because there's this other misapprehension that people in a blackout would, you'd obviously be able to tell it. And with some people, you can obviously tell it the same way you can tell when they're obviously drunk. And with other people, you can't tell. And there's a line in my book where I say like, there's no red indicator light when your brain shuts down. It's like trying to tell if somebody else has a headache. You can't. Okay, so this is a really valuable uh, summary of blackout. But, but we should be clear, you know, when we're talking about a piece you've just published that does not have anything to do with blackout on the surface, it was a culture war piece. And it was, you know, it's now part of a kind of literary canon of pieces by people, um, journalists and writers and, you know, various sorts of creators sort of lamenting the the censoriousness of the culture and your piece specifically is about your own your your self-censorship. We should make very clear this is not a piece about how you are being silenced but it's about how you're silencing yourself. But you know the reason I wanted to kind of have this be the beginning part of our discussion is that you a lot of what you wanted to write about uh, had to do with the way that blackouts intersect with issues around sexual consent. So it's not like you were this culture warrior wanting to, you know, write about every hot button issue uh, <laughs> as some sort of a reflex. It's not, you know, you weren't out there saying, well, why can't I write things about uh, race and IQ or something like, like that? Like that was, <laughs> that was not your wheelhouse. Okay. Um, it was, speci- it was specifically around these things. So, um, it was really around around that issue, yes, because when the book came out in 2015, the issue of campus sexual assault was huge. It was one of the biggest things in the media and also just in women's lives, which was kind of the area that I had carved out. And one of the things I noticed before my book ever came out was that there was a gigantic reluctance really almost a taboo against talking about drinking. And there's some good reason for that because how much a woman drank had long been used in the court system to discredit her experience. But what I kept hearing was that alcohol was not an important factor. And I thought it was a critical factor. And the more that I spent time on college universities talking to the students themselves, the more they echoed the idea that it was critical. And you can find this in polls that were being taken at the time. Kids were very confused because we'd also introduced another idea, which is that 
after a certain amount of alcohol, the consent is no longer valid. The whole consent conversation was new to me. I had to really fine tune my ear toward it. It was a new concept. But at the time that I was doing my work, there was this idea that the consent is not valid if the person is drunk. Well, how do you know that they're drunk? How many, how many drinks is it? All the kids wanted to know the number of beers, the number of drinks. Well, nobody has that because it's distinct to an individual. And so they were fascinated by this conversation. Meanwhile, I was in, experiencing a media landscape, in particular a feminist landscape, because that's kind of where I had emerged from in writing for Salon and running a blog called Broadsheet. And those writers in particular and the ones that were kind of in that crowd had a tremendous resistance to it. And I finally did write about it. I was very scared, but I did write a piece for Texas Monthly. I think it's called The Alcohol Blackout. And it was really around this idea. All of this was happening before the Brock Turner case happened. Right. And it was happening before Me Too, we should say. So your your book came out in 2015. I think your Texas Monthly piece, which is also an excellent piece, came out in 2016. And yeah, I mean, I think it's worth sort of, you know, pausing on this for, for a second, because I think it's so, it's, it's so key, the role of the feminist blogosphere, uh, the role of sort of digital media, the, the Jezebel kind of uh, discourse, the way that that salon, the way those news organizations started changing, like, you know, I, I used to read Jezebel used to be hilarious. Like I loved oh, Je- Jezebel, brilliant. like through the really you know early, early 2000s. Um, same with salon, same with Slate, all those places. And then something started happening around, around the time that your book came out where, you know, a lot of the, the women who had been, you know, sort of very, sort of freewheeling and open-minded in their thinking. And there was a real sense of irony and there was, um, uh, you know, really no interest that I can recall in a victim narrative really to speak of. That's not something I remember. That started to change radically. Um, And so, you know, by the time Me Too came around, um, this was just totally baked in that there was a the sort of a default setting that women were uh kind of automatically going to be in the in the victim role if there was any kind of sexual assault complaint made yeah one of the things that's also happening like alongside that whole story is the continuing spread of women and drinking and the message of its empowerment Yes, yes, moms and all of that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because alcohol distributors and marketers had mostly ignored women in the 20th century. If you were going to hear an alcoholic story from a woman, usually about hidden drinking, or maybe she was one of those women that hung out with the guys at the bar. By the 21st century, you have happy hours, you have, you have book clubs, you have, you know, day drinking. And, and it's almost like, this enormous brand expansion that's being delivered by women themselves. And it was fascinating to me because there was enormous pushback on several different fronts. One was around the issue of women and pregnant women and drinking, which is not really my lane, but any message that women shouldn't drink while pregnant was, was met with a roar. But the other one that was very very close to my world 
was sexual assault and drinking and what constituted consent. I remember it was around 2013 or 14 when a writer that I still love dearly and was working closely with me, um, but came from a little bit of a different mindset as she was a little younger than me. There was an incident over Twitter where Dr. Phil, it wasn't Dr. Phil himself, it was whoever's running his Twitter campaign, had written something like, can you ever have sex with a drunk woman? And I mean, look, Twitter is not the great place for nuanced dialogue. And so maybe you don't tweet that question out. But I thought it was a great question. What does it mean to be drunk? What do, you know, and all of a sudden it got swooped up by this ever-expanding feminist media and called a rape tweet. And I remember when we wrote about it, the headline was something like Dr. Phil's vile rape tweet. And I pushed back both with the writer and with my editor in chief. I don't believe it was ever changed, but it was the, and I said, it it, it says nothing about rape. Why can you? And also, I don't understand. Why is it a rape tweet? It was the, the question was, can you ever have sex with a drunk woman? Because I think the presumed answer was no, of course not. You should know that. And I was think I was sitting there coming out of the fog of 25 years of heavy drinking, an enormous amount of drunk sex, maybe like 95% majority drunk sex. And I'm thinking, if you can't have sex with a drunk woman, my last 25 years would have looked very different. And by the way, you asked some of the things that I used to do in blackouts. I think it's very important to this conversation to mention I was very sexually aggressive. I know that I was feeding something in myself that felt too fat, not pretty enough, not chosen. I didn't have a boyfriend during a lot of these years, most of my life. And I was always looking. I I liked the idea that someone would fuck me. And I'm sorry that I say that, but it's true. I liked the idea that I would walk to a party and some guy would say, I want to fuck her. And I would do it. And I, I, I never found these stories shameful. I found them. Well, actually that's not true. A couple of them were really bad, but like I found them like, yeah, like I did it. Like I got another notch in the belt and I didn't find this to be unique in my experience. Not only had I known a lot of women like that, now a lot of my friends were married, so I don't want to cast aspersions on my closest friends. They're married. They didn't have this life, but I had a lot of friends that were doing this and when I got into the rooms, because I openly speak about the fact that I, I did AA, those stories are so massive. Like <laughs> you hear about them all the time. So I knew that that was a huge part of both blackout drinking and the life of a very heavy female drinker. There's a line I heard in a meeting once that I never forgot. And it said, this woman, she was so amazing. I, I'd never it was something about her story that pulled me in. It wasn't the slogans and the dogma and all that, but she said this line that when in an alcoholic's life, men wind up in jail cells and women wind up in random beds. And I was like, wow, that's me. And you have so many amazing lines in this piece, but I'll just read one because I think it's germane here. You write the Me Too movement, which felt like a necessary corrective when it began, was starting to feel like an arrow pointed at our own agency. 
I couldn't always tell the difference between activism and protectionism, valid critique and frivolous complaint. The notion that men were the ones who needed to change, not a bad idea in my opinion, had a stubborn way of relinquishing women from the burden of their own choices and behavior. So is that a concept that you felt you could not parse in public on the page until now? Yeah, I don't think I could put that sentence down until I finally wrote it. I mean, which was only like two months ago. I I was struggling for the longest time with the Me Too movement because when it started, and it feels like it started around the Harvey Weinstein thing, even though I know the hashtag and the movement have been going for some time. That's what crossed my path. And it started with such kind of like eye-popping stories and with such utter like now's the time. And it was right in the wake of Trump getting elected. And remember that I had quite a high profile in these years as someone writing about these things. So people would come to me and ask me to write about them. And I was careerist. I wanted to sell another book. I was running out of money. I, I really, this was, I had chosen a lane and the lane was filling up with stories and people were coming to me to ask me to write the stories. And I was like, I can't. Yeah, you say, th- I'm going to interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you by quoting you again. You, you write, privately, I was worried I was wrong. That was another reason for the silence. Perhaps I had internalized my own misogyny, whatever that means. Perhaps my thinking, steeped in the classic liberalism of 90s slacker culture, was unevolved. Boy, do I relate to that. That sounds like that could be right out of my book, The Problem with Everything. But yeah. It's, well, it probably is like it's it's it, it probably is in some ways inspired by your work because you we're were the same one of age. The That's what I'm saying. I'm, first <laughs> of all, yeah, well, and uh, and so just I'm a little bit younger than you, Megan. I'm a tiny. Sorry. Bit okay. Sorry. Sorry. We'll, we we'll, are we'll, I'll edit that out. Xers. We are both Gen Xers, and you started speaking openly about this in a way that allowed me and everyone else to listen to someone trying to unpack this moment and understand it and pin it down to the page. You did it both in your podcast and in your book. And I was really, I really, I really learned from both of them in particular, the podcast, because there was something about the interviews that you were doing where you were almost like trying to pin down, like, when did this start? Like, do a diagnostic or something. Like, why did this start? When did this start? I kept hearing you ask this of so many interesting people. And I was starting to put it together in my own mind. Okay, it sounds like it starts around 2013, 2014. Why is that? What's happening in the culture? You know, I was at Salon. I was seeing it happen. I thought it was a headline problem. We had a terrible clickbait headline problem. We uh, had had a bunch of our older editors and writers had all been lost in the recession. We brought on a bunch of new writers. They had an incredibly canny way of basically tilting a story so that people would have to click on it. This, the, the headlines got more and more re- irresistible. The stories got lousier and lousier. I saw it happening all across the internet. When I pushed back on the editor at the time, who was not there long, he said, this is what the internet is doing. And I just thought, but we're ruining the brand. But I saw it all across Facebook. People were saying, these stories are lousy. 
I'm clicking on these stories that, you know, what's happened to Salon. And, you and were, I was wondering that clear, too. You were the editor. You were the personal essays editor at Salon. You're, you're talking about what yeah. you experienced as an editor. Yeah, I at that time was the personal essays editor, but I had also been in charge of the culture section. In the in the wake of basically a massive bloodletting, Salon went through two layoffs in a period of six months. By the end of the last layoff, there were only two editors left. One was the political editor and one was me. I think I, I will never know why I was kept on. I think it was because they were paying me less than everyone else. We were absolutely bare bones. And so I became the culture editor. But when I when I quit drinking and I left New York and I moved back to Dallas, I stayed on part time as the personal essays editor. It was a personal passion of mine. It was the best part of my job. And I mean that, that I was the best at it. It was a time when the internet was really hungry for personal stories. And I was feeding that beast. This is how you and I got to know each other because it was a very lucky day when someone connected me to Megan Dom a writer that I knew already because you'd written my misspent youth, which was another story that I related to because I'd gone thousands of dollars in the hole during, uh, I think it was about 50,000 during my years in New York on credit cards. I didn't even go to Emma. I didn't even get an MFA. <laughs> 50,000. Oh, that's child's play. So I, this, okay, I, this, is, this is a very useful context. I want to make sure that we really, really drill down on this this particular lens that you have for talking about consent and alcohol, and I'm actually, in listening to you talk, my heart is breaking almost because this is such, uh, it's such a crucial and also fascinating way to look at consent and that we have been denied your voice and any number of other voices on this because it's just so radioactive. Um, it's, it's too bad. So, um, let's, let's just dive in and talk about the Brock Turner case, because when your Atlantic piece came out, um, I think people, a a lot of people I saw absolutely loved it and were excited about it and, you know, really related, but then, um, even just mentioning the Brock Turner case that set a lot of people off and, um, there are a bunch of reasons for that. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And I want to say, I I really do understand. I knew going into this that that part of the essay would get the strongest pushback. Um, Because the story talks about the fact that I had done a book event with Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell wrote about the Brock Turner case in his best-selling book, Talking to Strangers that came out maybe a couple of years ago. And when it came out, one of the things that he did, he really did drill down in that case in a way that I had not been able to, I was desperate for somebody else to do it. And when Gladwell did it, I was like, Oh my God, thank you. I felt like I had been relieved of a psychic burden. And was he talking about, sorry to interrupt you, but was he talking about the, the, the consent issue and the drinking issue? Or was he talking about something else? Consent in particular, because the book looks at communication and how communication breaks down. He's looking at binge drinking environments and how communication gets lost. And he's looking at why the party culture is so prevalent in American cultures, as it is in a lot of Western leisure societies. And so, but one of the things he sort of comes away with, and it was very offensive to the reviewer for the New York Times when she reviewed his book, 
is that he basically calls that incident a tragic misunderstanding between two people. And he spent a lot of words getting to that place. But that phrase was plucked by certain people in social media. Certainly their book reviewer at the New York Times didn't like it. She didn't spend a lot of time there. But I had the I knew the Brock Turner story was explosive, but because Gladwell had put that book out thinking that was going to be the most explosive thing, he went on Oprah and they spent the whole time talking about alcohol because he thought that was the big part that everyone was going to talk about. Well, then the press came out and everybody kind of ignored it, except for a few people. And so, like, I was under the misapprehension by the time this story came out, like, maybe people are just kind of past it. So obviously that is not the case. Okay. And let's actually, uh, before we go any further, let's just give a thumbnail sketch of the Brock Turner case in case anybody does not know. It's the Stanford swimmer. This this became really the sort of one of the signature Me Too incidents. This was not a celebrity case, but this was like, a, you know, what we perceive to be a privileged white boy uh, at an elite college case. So just tell us what happened as far as you or anyone knows. I will. But before I do that, I, do, I will tell you, um, I also want to say that I actually think not many of us will, we may never know what happened, but of I'll course. get to that. Before I say that, I just want to say that one of the reasons why I think the response is so intense is because the media badly handled this piece. This, this case, piece the case. Was, oh, oh, this piece of oh, the, this part of the case, you mean? Yeah. No, no, you're right. You're right. The media badly mishandled this case and this story. And there are some understandable reasons for that. And there's some really awful, neglectful reasons for that, that we may not even get into that have to do with the media environment, how fast it moves, how stories hit, what does and doesn't get reported. I think we should get into it, actually. I I think actually. So, 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 yes. Yeah. Let's get to it. So we can go there. And the thing is, is that this story itself takes place, what the incident takes place in 2015. You have to remember the context of that time. Again, the campus sexual assault story is one of the biggest stories in the country, but certainly if you're at a university and if you're at a university like Stanford. So it's high alert for this idea of rape culture, that that colleges protect uh, perpetrators. And so... And athletes especially. Right. And athletes especially. So let's get to the story. In January 2015, a young woman who's not a Stanford student, whose name is Chanel Miller, which she is later revealed by her, during a lot of the early stories, she was just an anonymous. She was called em- Emily Doe for some reason, I believe. Emily yeah. Doe, thank you. Yes. Um, but we now know her name to be Chanel Miller. She was about 21 or 22. She was not a Stanford student. She and her sister, who was also not a Stanford student, had an invite to go to a KA party, that's a fraternity, at Stanford. And they decided to go together. They pregame beforehand in the court documents. Um, Chanel talks about taking four shots of whiskey and some champagne. And then they head over to the party. Their mom drives them. And they get there. 
around like 11 or so. And they're with another person. I think she's the Stanford student, but I'm not clear on that. But the third girl in their party gets so drunk that she needs to go home. And so Chanel's sister attends to her. They leave. It's important to know that when Chanel's sister leaves her at the party, she was asked, well, why did you leave your sister alone at a party? And she says, well, she seemed fine. And that's about midnight. Between midnight and 1230, we don't really know what happens because at this point, from best we can tell, Chanel is in a blackout. She doesn't remember. We have some phone records. She called her boyfriend. She left a voicemail. Part of it was unintelligible. So even though her her friend, or I'm sorry, your sister thought she looked fine, so the voicemail didn't sound good. Her, unintelligible, so meaning she's slurring and seeming she, exactly, drunk? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Okay. And this is actually, when I read that detail, it's going to seem confusing to your listeners, but I've been told over the years, you were fine one minute and then you were disaster. I don't know what happened. And, you know, probably what's happening is that the blood alcohol content is getting to such a disabling part point. Well, between 12 and 1230, she meets somebody else at the party. And that's a swimmer named Brock Turner. And he's a freshman. He's 19 years old. He's from Dayton, Ohio, kind of middle class, upper middle class family. He had hopes to go to the Olympics with the Nationals. He was apparently really good. He was also a very heavy drinker. And he was a drug user, too. I mean, his text messages will talk about, you know, it's almost embarrassing to read these text messages. They're in the court documents because they talk like rappers, you know, like, yo, get me some, some, I'm not even going to pretend like I'm making, but like, it's that kind of language. And when you say drugs, are you talking about? Marijuana or heavier yeah. stuff? Okay. Marijuana. I think there's some psychedelics thrown in there, okay. but you know, so at this party, he's drinking and apparently he'd hit on a couple of other girls. That's what her sister said later that he tried to kiss her. He just seemed like, you know, he was kind of clowning himself, like coming up to girls and making out with them and they were pushing them away. Well, anyway, at some point, he and Chanel start this. Okay, now I'm going to say our only narrator for the next part of our story is Brock Turner because Chanel doesn't remember what happened. And while there were many people at that party, most of them were so drunk or they were so wrapped up in their own dramas that they don't really remember it. I believe there are two eyewitnesses that remember them talking and 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 making out and 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 dancing. But that is, you know, most of this comes from Brock Turner, who was pretty loaded. I'm going to fast forward and say that their blood alcohol content, when it was tested, Brock tested at a 0.17, and Chanel's is estimated to be around 0.22 to 2.24. So both of those are in very strong, like, like basically blackouts start happening at our best guess is around 0.15. So you're in there. And I want to also say BAC tests, blood alcohol contests, blood alcohol content tests are imprecise. They're taken sometimes hours after their estimates, but this is our best estimate is that they're both pretty loaded. 
and they meet between 12:30 and 12:55 that's when the real kind of problematic part starts from Brock's description they decide that they're going to go back to his dorm and they're walking from the KA house to Brock's another location i'm pretty sure it's Brock's dorm maybe he had some other place in mind during that she slips he gets down on the grass with her and they start what he would call hooking up. And we don't know how long this goes on for. Um, I want to pause and say that one of the most damning details in this whole thing was the presence of a dumpster. I don't know why and how that dumpster made it into the narrative, but what I've learned about the Stanford campus is that there are indeed dumpsters on it. I was told they were actually fenced off, but the, they weren't in some alleyway. They were on a lawn that was leading to another dorm. They, they meaning they were, Chanel and Brock. Chanel they, and Brock. Okay, yes. It okay. was dark and it was nearly 1am, but it was actually kind of out in the open. Now it had some proximity to a dumpster. A dumpster or like, or like, Okay, because a dumpster we associate with a gigantic metal thing filled with garbage that would be, you know, behind a building or in the corner of a parking lot or something like that. Are we talking about sort of receptacles around a campus that are just kind of like garbage can, like trash cans? I'd actually love to know this. And if any of your listeners went to Stanford and are familiar with the area around the KA house, I would love to know this. I meant to Google it before you and I spoke. Um, Because I was always under the impression that the dumpster was there, but it was not like relevant. And it was only in a conversation yesterday that I had with a judge. We can talk about this later. Like there's a former judge named uh, Ladoris Cordell who got involved when the judge in this case was recalled. So I spoke to her for a while yesterday and she shared with me that like the dumpster, like there is no, like, I don't know if you call it a dumpster or not. But it's not relevant to this case. Because that's that is the, the detail. That and hear. that's the detail that everybody remembers. And I and it's it, anybody old enough to remember the Tawana Brawley case from back in the, I think it was the late 80s in New York. That was, she was found in a dumpster. That ended up being a hoax. But th- there's, you know, there is a legacy of dumpster uh, references in really horrific assault cases so i think it it triggers people for sure yes it's an incredibly powerful detail that turns out to be an irrelevant detail and the other part so what happens during this incident again i'm not there and we really only have brock turner now we don't even have eyewitnesses at the party and what we know is I'm just going to give you a few details. We have no reason to believe Brock's pants were ever down because when he was stopped by two Swedes and he starts to run off. Okay. Swedes meaning other students on uh, this, the, the Swede, the Swede detail has also been salient. So you're talking about two Stanford students who were on bicycles who happened to be Swedish. Yeah. So something's happening 
they walk past and they see that the person underneath is not moving and it looks very scary to them. Like they see Brock and Chanel fooling around on the ground. That's what they see. Exactly. What they saw was somebody thrusting into her and the person was not moving. And at first they think somebody's just hooking up and they look away, but there's something wrong. And they look back and they see that the woman is so still, she appears to be passed out. Now the question is whether or not Brock Turner knew that she was passed out. And I can't answer that question, but I will say that he was very drunk and it does not, you know, so, so the Swedes walk up and say, Hey, what are you doing? Or whatever they say. And he gets startled and runs off. Well, it looks incredibly incriminating. But I guess I wanted to use the detail that, like, he didn't have to zip up his pants. This was according to the Swede's testimony? Yeah. That he, okay. He, he just immediately ran. And then one of them gives chase, pins him down. And one detail that was left out of even the jury trial, and I don't know why, is that Brock Turner had a minor in possession, which is also called an MIP which is an infraction or whatever you call it for drinking underage. He already had one. He'd gotten it the semester before the cops had chased him. It was a whole ordeal. He was afraid he was going to use, lose his swimming scholarship or that he wasn't going to be able to swim. So I certainly can't put myself in Brock Turner's shoes, but if he's doing something and that he perceives to be a hookup and someone says, Hey, and he runs. My guess is it's because he's afraid they're authorities and they're going to bust him for underage drinking. When the cops finally show up, he's still thinking this is a hookup. We're going to clear this up is my guess. One of the other things is that when the cop or somebody, the paramedics, maybe ask him, why did you run? He says, I didn't run. Well, he did, and that would be my guess that he was in a blackout. But I don't know that, and I have to be very careful. This is, I don't know that. I just know that that's an odd detail. Okay, and what, where do you know this from? Because obviously this kind of detail was not widely reported in the media. Are you getting this from public records? Was this something that you had been interested in writing about enough that you were actually doing, starting to do reporting and research? Where are you getting this information? When the victim statement that Chanel Miller wrote was published on BuzzFeed and went really super viral and people were asking me to write about this case, I took it on myself to learn more about it. It had actually been covered quite a bit in the California press, and I hadn't noticed it. It had been going on for about nine months. So there was a lot to dig into. Um, There was a lot of attention around it. And I think at one point, the Los Angeles Times published either a link or the actual court documents. Just a massive amount of court documents. I spent several days reading them taking notes. I thought that I might write a story. 
I didn't know what the story would be about. I really wanted to get in touch with Chanel Miller. I was never able to. Uh, yeah, that's where they come from. They come from court documents. And most of what I'm telling you right now comes from court documents. There's a lot that I'm not sharing with you. I think there are details that never came out that also support the idea that we, this was really like a, a very, like the, the heavy drinking, let's get blackout party culture that had taken hold in the late 20th century and into the 21st century was not only like an important detail, but maybe like the central detail of this story. Because there is so much around this evening, even details that I can't, I, I don't want to share because they never went out in the press. I, I don't want anybody to look, I'm sorry to be tantalizing, but a lot of times I get accused of like, you didn't read the court, right? Like a lot of the Twitter commentary was like, you left out the Swedes. There were two eyewitnesses. Well, there were two eyewitnesses to something that happened like to a moment, but they don't know what happened before they got there. And of course, uh, you know, one of the most, I always thought moving details was that one of those Swedes cried and I can't know why he cried. I was always very moved by that. He cried when he was talking at the time or during a a trial. He was, I think he was talking to one of the paramedics or talking to one of the police. But again, I can't know, but I will tell you, I've heard from a number of international students who have either read my book or heard about my book and written to me, I don't understand why I'm not cool for not drinking the way that other people do. I don't know why I'm ostracized because I don't want to participate in this party culture. Um, They really don't understand a lot of times also international students don't feel that they can party like that because they could lose their, um, either scholarship or their visa visas. Yeah. And, and so this was a detail that came out in Caitlin Flanagan's own reporting about, uh, for the Atlantic about binge drinking culture is that it alienates a lot of international students and students of color who often don't feel as emboldened to just party balls. Well, it's also, a, it's, a, it's a fraternity culture. I mean, it's, it's fraternity already cordoned off. It's already a self-selecting group. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. so I, you know, I, I mean, it, it, he could have been crying about the, you know, what, what, what he saw, but I also just think that, that like, there's a whole culture of things going on that are so upsetting to the bystander and they are so normal to the people involved. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here, almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. 
you can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official unspeakable podcast, Nuanced AF Merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Okay. I also want to clarify something. This is called this this was is called a rape case. Is was there uh, a rape was there a rape kit uh, done on on Chanel Miller? And yeah, if, it, so if this so, is what fascinating. Was found? This is fascinating, and this part I didn't know until I spoke with Judge Cordell yesterday. So some of my own understanding of this case is coming. Is 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 getting more is getting richer and deeper because I'm I'm speaking to people that got deeply involved in the case. She in in her case it was because of the recall of the judge. But, but to answer your question, so so Brock Turner is interrogated that night. He is also banned from the Stanford campus two days later before there is any trial. Before there is really much of anything, he was banned. He was charged, I'm sorry, let me, let me get the order of this. A story, a week after the incident, a story comes out in the Los Angeles Times with the headline that is something like, Stanford scholarship swimmer accused of raping unconscious woman on campus. Okay, now, where did they get this? And I don't know because I haven't spoken to the writer involved. And I don't know. But I do know that there were a lot of really complicated ideas about what constituted rape that were happening around alcohol. And they were getting kind of like unfolded in these court cases. A lot of people that I spoke to for research for my story they said that if a, a woman was drunk, it was rape. Back to that Dr. Phil's. That you can't right? consent if you've had anything to drink whatsoever. Exactly. Consent is impossible. Yep. Exactly. But it's important to know that Turner hasn't been indicted yet. And this piece comes out and, you know, Brock Turner's story was this was a hookup. 
I guess she passed out. I didn't know it. I'm horrified and I'm mortified. And I'm, you know, like that. He was saying that he was saying he was using words like that. He was saying that like, like, uh, I can't remember if it's later to the probation officer, but like, he really did express, I'm so sorry that this happened. It was shocking to him. He was confused. And then Chanel wakes up in the hospital and she doesn't know why she's there. She, it's a complete blank space. What happened? She didn't even have her phone. I don't think. And she doesn't know like what's happened. And so where they got rape is probably that there was a, there was a suggestion from some party and I don't know who that she had passed out the whole time that he had like, cause she's saying, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. There was a suggestion that she had passed out like before they left the fraternity house. That she passed out. He came by and took advantage of her, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Oh, okay. Or that she, okay. 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 Because raping unconscious woman, that headline is very hard to walk back is my point. And my point is that he wasn't indicted yet. So the next day he gets indicted and he gets indicted on five charges. Two of them are rape, just rape. And then also rape by intoxication. Those charges are dropped eventually because there's a DNA test and the DNS tape, the DNA test proves that there's no, you know, there was no rape from that traditional definition. Okay, because another, because another salient detail uh, besides the dumpster is that there was like soil and twigs and leaves like on her body inside her body, perhaps. Do you know anything about those details? No, I don't. I mean, it's such a shocking detail in her piece. What we do know is, and I'm, you know, according to Brock, he was fingering her. They were on grass. They were rolling around. Okay. Was there any, but did they find evidence like of his semen inside her? Let's just put it that way. No. No. So nine months later, nine months later, um, they do a DNA test and he's, he's cleared of the charges, but nine months is a very long time to have the headline raping unconscious victim out there in the world. He's cleared of all charges or just the rape charges, just the rape charges. And then it gets basically the trial starts. He is convicted of sexual assault, um, and sexual assault, um, like by intoxication, like there's a couple different charges that he's found guilty. And one thing I want to make a point of is that blackout cases almost never get convictions. Emily Bazelon wrote about this in the New York Times during this moment. I don't think many people were interested in this because she was actually saying, wow, this is actually a really unusually not lenient case. We don't, we don't generally see convictions because what happens is that the person to whom this happened can't really tell you when they passed out, what happened, what was going on. They don't have memory. And so it's highly unusual. So the fact that there was a conviction is actually, at least from a legal standpoint, kind of like you would think they would consider it a major win. 
And we should but say that's that judge, not what happens. Right. And Judge Persky was the judge in this case. Let's be clear. The judge that you were referring to earlier is not the judge in this case. She is somebody else. So Judge Persky is the one that um, that is, is on this case. He he what's the sentence? It's like six months jail it's time six months or? and three years probation. And he's okay. got to register as a sex offender for life. And Judge Persky is considered a very progressive judge, um, certainly not somebody that goes uh, easy on uh, men accused of sex crimes. Like the let's just the, the the lefties like him. Let's just put it that way, right? He's he's you're exactly you know, right. The, the Bay Area. Like he is he is a popular figure uh, in that region. Okay, so he's it's not like you know they're all on the edge of their seat waiting to find an excuse to get rid of him. And and we should also say that these were sentencing guidelines that were pretty much in line with anything else. Sorry, I'm not saying that very well. Well, the probation officer, the probation officer had come up with the sentence and he, you know, he, he agreed to it. And I think maybe one of his cardinal sins was saying that Brock had a really bright future and he didn't want this to be too, you know, reflect too badly right. on and, him. And I think, I think Brock Turner's lawyer was not doing him a lot of favors either by emphasizing that, you know, how terrible this was. He wasn't going to be able to, you know, get to the Olympics or there was something about eating a steak dinner or something like that. Just the, so the, the optics and the rhetoric around this were not helping him. I think you're possibly remembering his father's character letter to the judge, which was leaked shortly after the victim's impact statement went supernova on BuzzFeed. So what happens is that Chanel Miller, who, by the way, was a theater person. She did a lot of spoken word. She's a very powerful speaker, clearly a beautiful writer. She reads this in the courtroom. I mean, you can see it in the court document. Somebody says like, I've never seen a victim's impact statement like that in 20 years. It was amazing. And the next day that was sent to several news organizations and Buzzfeed is the one that picked it up and ran with it the fastest. It went very super viral. And after that, the letters to the judge start to leak. And we don't know why. The letters to we the judge ideas. On, on behalf of Brock Turner, his, That's right. his friends and family. When, testif- you know, That's right. When ca- character references. Goes, yes, yes. Character references. One of them is from his father, who has a line in there that says that his life shouldn't change for 20 minutes of action. If you've just read the victim's impact statement, that's an alarming an almost disgusting phrase. But you have to remember these letters were written before the people involved really knew much of anything except for Brock's story. Brock's own story has been that it was a hookup gone wrong. And I don't know Brock's father, and I don't know, but I have a very hard time believing he meant action as in, you know, getting it on. Yeah. Also, uh, and it oh, wasn't just no, a clumsy right. it's, it's synonym. A, yeah. It wasn't just a clumsy synonym for behavior. Right. And also people's entire lives do change from 20 minutes of action. Five seconds. I mean, you can murder somebody. That's, that's exactly right. 
Chanel Miller's victim statement, it's available. I'm assuming it's still on BuzzFeed. It's easily readable on the internet. And she then went on to publish a memoir um, expanding on it. What is in that statement? Because is it's a victim's impact statement. Am I right to assume that she's talking about the impact that this event had on her more than the details of the event itself? Like, what is actually the substance of that statement? That's a really good question and actually a really good observation that this is a victim's impact statement. This is probably the most affecting depiction of the impact of an event like this on an individual that I'd ever read. But central to this story, as Chanel admits herself, was that she didn't remember what happened. She admits to her drinking. She admits that she can't remember. You know, the victim's impact statement is just beautifully written, elegantly written. I don't think that it avoids the fact that she had a blackout. Um, She didn't remember things. And she knew that. She very much, a lot of the more affecting details are towards the end where she talks about what it was like to hear him describe it. Because I think she heard either in trial or through transcripts or through news stories. See, that was always very painful to me. I thought she was learning about what happened through the media. It's very upsetting. She learned several details about this by reading stories that she didn't even know. And were those stories accurate? I don't know, because I haven't really done the full diagnostic We've spent a long time talking about the Brock Turner case, and it's important to remember, I had written a story about a totally different thing. I'm six years removed from this story. Obviously, I'm getting I'm getting sort of like sucked back into it again and probably will write about it again. Um, but, you know, I don't come to you after having written the definitive piece on Brock Turner in The Atlantic. I come to you having you know, reawoken that case for a lot of people, including myself, after having written what I thought was a charming, lovely piece. Yeah. And and by the way, silencing myself. And yeah. And actually, by the way, when I saw how people were reacting to the mention of the Brock Turner case in your piece, I, I, I was like, oh gosh, maybe she said something more than I remember. And then I went back and read your piece again. You, you don't say anything. You just say that she didn't remember that these are people who don't remember what happened. That's all you said. Yeah. Um, a couple things there. I noticed one person pluck a quote that said, I called her a quote, unreliable narrator. I want to just point out that the full sentence was, we are all unreliable narrators. So if you want to look at unreliable narrators, go to Twitter where the commentary on my piece makes it seem as though, well, let me not say that. Let me just say this. There was a really interesting tweet. It was the one that made me think more than any of the other ones. Definitely more than the one that said, did it take you five years to poop on your laptop? Because that one did not make me think at all, although it made me laugh quite a bit. Because I had said in my tweet that it took me five years to write this piece. Okay. So it was 
I hope I can remember it. I don't have it in front of me. It said something like the sin, your sin was sympathizing with Brock Turner, not empathizing and not having the intellectual like acumen or rigor to understand the difference between those two things. That was sent by what appeared to me to be like a young writer. It got a lot of likes and it got a lot of likes over several days, which made it kind of continue to come back into my feed. First time I read it, I didn't even understand it. I was like, what? Empathy, sympathy, my sin. I was like, are you for me or against me? Like I was like in the foxhole. Like I had so many things coming at me. I just couldn't even understand it. And so many of them were so intense. But that one I actually read out loud to a friend of mine. And he was like, that's really interesting. Like that's a really interesting idea. A, that it was a sin to sympathize with Brock Turner. B, that it would have been okay if I'd empathized with him. But the fact that I sympathized him with him was what went wrong. And then that I lacked the intellectual ability to distinguish between the two of them. I remember somebody came into the comments later and said, sympathy is braver because it's riskier. And that's what, you know, meaning that that's what I did. I went and looked up because I do lack the intellectual acumen. To yeah, well, I, I'm sometimes. trying. I mean, I, I I have an idea of the difference between those two things, but it might be very uh, rudimentary. So, what'd you learn? Well, it's like, I mean, I'll just Google it now because, like, well, I mean, empathy is when you can put yourself in the other person's shoes, right? Like, you can. Is that right? And then sympathy, yeah. I don't know. What does that just mean? Feeling sorry for them? So I don't know. Sympathy has two definitions, and I think they're quite different. One is feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. And the, under, the other one is an understanding between people, common feeling. And, you know, I do have sympathy, and I'm going to double down on that word, for Brock Turner, Brett Kavanaugh, Johnny Depp, Ryan Adams, all the people that I mentioned in that piece because I was a drunk and because I know that when I was a drunk, I did things that I wouldn't have otherwise done. And when people told me that I did them, my response was I couldn't have done them because I would never do that. But they told me that I had done them and I had to believe them. And it caused enormous amounts of distress and despair for me. And because of that distress and despair, which I often experienced at 4am, when I woke up not knowing what I'd done, alone in my bed, wondering how I got home, wondering who I had hurt, I will never not extend that sympathy to someone else. I can't. I, I don't, I don't, this is one of these things that it, so it's fascinating to me that someone would say, that that was my sin, that they would use that word, right? You you just mentioned Brett Kavanaugh. You did write an op-ed in the New York Times in the fall of 2018 about Brett Kavanaugh, Christine Blasey Ford's situation about blackout. Uh, that piece, in my memory, was received pretty well. What Everybody loved me. Went on there. Everybody yeah. loved me then, Megan. Ashley Judd was tweeting me. Martina Navratilova was tweeting me. I was like, I mean, cause like I'm, I'm being a little bit glib right now, but like, like undergirding a lot of this is like my deep need to be loved that I'm trying to work through. 
in order to be able to tell like a little bit more of an honest truth about things in the world. But also it's like, it's like that was really strange because that was a piece that seemed to kind of be lunged at by both sides of the aisle in, in ways that nothing else could. So the part of me that wants to forever make peace and make the common feeling was like, yes, I did it. I did it. I got the both sides to agree with me because that's been part of my own internal hope over the past several years. I live in Texas. And so if you live in Texas, you can't help but know and interact with people that are conservative. They think very differently. You can't really be like an echo chamber liberal, or at least you have a very small world. So I was very much hoping that that would speak to both sides. And it did. The story basically in a nutshell says it, it was, it was prompted by a tweet from Chris Hayes at MSNBC. He asked online, would it be possible to have a blackout and not know that you had a blackout? And I knew the answer to that because I had studied that. And I was hearing after my book came out from many people that were saying, Oh my God, I didn't know I was having blackouts until I read your book. And then I realized that's why people were telling me I was doing these things that I was, didn't think I was doing. Because I just don't think if you don't experience blackouts, and about 50% of people don't, 50% of drinkers don't, you just don't know how completely strange it is not to be able to remember what you did. And if, you know, if it happens to you and you are a blackout drinker, it's just like you may not even know it. And so I've actually watched like tears come to someone's eyes because in this case, they finally understood why their mother refused to believe she beat her because she had done it in a blackout. And she finally understood because her mother was an alcoholic. She didn't understand blackouts. She didn't understand that they could both be telling the truth, that her mother could say, I didn't remember it. And she could say it happened and they could both be true. I was trying to find the same alignment in the Kavanaugh Blasey Ford story. So that basically what I saw was that I Having listened to Christine Blasey Ford, found it an incredibly credible testimony. And so I'm trying to square it with the story that says it didn't happen. And I'm also noticing in that trial, there was an expert witness that came in, asked a couple questions. I, I believe one of them was, have you ever blacked out? And he was like, no, 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 no. And I think he said something like, I've never, I've never passed out from drinking. And I was like, wait a minute, you're about to sit on the Supreme Court. You need a little blackout 101 because you don't even know what it is. And and I know that I just threw some shade on Justice Kavanaugh. And what I what I actually should say is that that entire generation doesn't know what blackout is because it wasn't known what it was. Really, really, people did not know. It, I don't, they thought that blackout, the, the best guess back in the 70s, 80s was that blackout was a late stage alcoholic affliction. And in part, that's because the studies were done on late stage alcoholics. It was just like a, it's just science, man. It's not always precise. And so he didn't understand what blackouts were. I could see that. I wrote this piece. It went out of the New York Times. It seemed to me like my conservative friends were like, wow, that really made me think. And my liberal friends were like, this finally helps it make sense. Like, like this is because they're all like wanting everybody to believe Ford. And so it was a very popular piece. I remember feeling so vindicated. 
because I'd wanted to write on Turner, Brock Turner for years. And I always felt like I had kind of sidestepped duty in a way. I know that's going to sound a little dramatic, but because there are so few people that can write about blackout and, and are willing to write about sex and had the college experience, like college campus experience that I had, I just felt like it was an arrow pointing to me. And I just kind of went, I got to sell a book. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch it. But I couldn't even look at this thing that was happening, which I've since learned a lot more about, which is that the judge, the very well-liked, from all accounts, progressive judge, Aaron Persky, was recalled after an election. The woman that led the fight against that recall. Yeah, I was going to say there was, was an anti-recall campaign that's very, the this is woman, very relevant. The woman that I mentioned earlier, uh, Doris Cordell, she is a 1974 Stanford graduate. She has dedicated her career as a judge to reforming the justice system, in particular for people of color and low you know, low income citizens. She's a, she's she's a black woman herself. Yes, she is. And she did not know judge Persky. They were not golfing buddies. She just saw this happening and was like, this can't happen. And everybody seemed scared. They were scared of this. Everybody that, that steps into the line to defend Brock Turner, including me gets slammed. You just, the sin of sympathy for this individual is so great. And yet what he did is so distorted. When you go to the internet and you Google this guy, you find songs called Fuck Brock Turner. You find, like I saw on the Wikipedia page, that his face is literally in a textbook on rape. Like he's become like the textbook rapist, even though... He was never convicted of it. Now, one thing I need to clarify is the laws in California around rape have since changed. So he was convicted of sexual assault. But since then, there was a push to change the definition of rape to broaden it, which has been happening to the concept of rape for decades now. Um, and so that it would be any anything, any sort of foreign object. I don't know what the language is. But basically, fingering someone in this case would be could be constituted as a rape. And so that was something I only learned when fact checking this document for the Atlantic, because the Atlantic has excellent fact checkers. And they pushed me on all this Brock Turner stuff, which is why it was hilarious when they were like people on Twitter, like you just really played fast and loose. You have no idea how long we had to button this up. But they, the fact checker pointed out to me that the law had changed, which I didn't know. I had had uh, some formulation like he was never convicted of rape, but we had to say it something like he was never convicted of ra- like rape at the time or something right. like that. Oh, so he has sent, so since then it has become technically correct that he was, what he was convicted of constitutes rape. But I you think have just to- one more thing is like, like 
as far as the sentencing and why everybody thought it was so wrong, I mean, we have to remember that they were actors, people like Kamala Harris inserted herself into this drama because she was the California attorney general after the sentencing came down. And she went on television and to the press and said, you know, we asked for 14 years. We wanted to get, he could have gotten 14 years. We asked for six. You know, this is a miscarriage of justice. And she was running for the U.S. Senate at the time. And I, I really would love to ask Kamala Harris what her understanding of this case was and where her understanding of this case came from. Because my understanding of her is that she's a hell of an attorney. And it's very, very hard for me to believe that an attorney, an attorney, a defense attorney, a prosecutor, would look at the details in this case and say what she did. And so now we come to LaDoris Cordell, who is a woman that just decided, I said, why did you take this on? She said, I wasn't scared of them. You know, and the reason I bring up LaDoris is because I think that this whole thing has been, because it was a frat house, because Brock Turner's mugshot makes him look like, it looks like something stolen out of a John Hughes movie to, to like, like portray the evil James Spader villain. So because of that, I think there has been a tendency to think of like, this is just a boys club, men backing men. Well, let me tell you, that's not the case with me. And that's not the case with Ladoris. Ladoris just thought this was wrong. And she thought that what was happening to Judge Persky was going to have a chilling effect on the legal system because judges would be so scared to hand down sentences because there would be recalls. Well, and we should also say that she wasn't she wasn't alone. There was, uh, you know, there were more than there were like some hundred plus law professors uh, and public, you know, hundreds of public defenders publicly opposing the recall. It's not like she was just out by herself. Like, yes, that's an know, excellent point. Mono, but what they did have maniacal mission. The propaganda on the other side was incredibly strong. It was that picture of Brock Turner with the words rapist next to a picture of Persky. I am very glad that Chanel Miller came out and said what her name was. And I believe her book is called Know My Name. And it was a sensation. And But for the longest time, because that book came out maybe like two years ago, for the longest time, you only had her incredibly powerful story and his name. You didn't have his story and you didn't have her name. And the combination of those two things, those like interesting elisions, made it so that he was just this monster, but he didn't have any voice. Now, in the court system itself, I mean, he had had a voice, but I mean, in the media, and the media is where most of us met him. It's where I met him. It's where I learned who he was. And I was seeing stuff on Facebook that was like, kill him, string him up, feed him to the wolves. And those were from like really compassionate writers. So I just want to make sure we get back to the Atlantic piece before we sign off here. I also want to be really clear again, this was not a story about you being censored. This was an essay about you censoring yourself. Uh, Having now written the piece and getting the kind of reaction that you're getting, how do you feel about censoring yourself? 
do you wish you had this time after all this? I mean, I certainly understand why I self-censored for as long as I did. And I understand why a lot of people self-censor. I mean, every time I would see a piece that I would connect to and I'd think like, oh yeah, I thought that. Then I would watch like the pitchforks on Twitter come out and I would think, oh, I can't say this. I need to shut up. It must be me. And I'm certain that that happened with other people in my case. I personally, I'm done with that. It's been six years and and more that I've kind of operated like this and I don't want to anymore. So it was tough and it revealed things to me about my industry, about my friend circle, both good and bad. And, uh, but I, but I feel kind of more free because this is the thing, the thing that I lived in total fear of for the longest time was all these random people on Twitter are going to come after me. And the fear of that was so outsized that I just wouldn't say anything. And I'm not saying that I had that bad of a blowback because I had a lot of people saying nice things, but I had a lot of people come after me on Twitter and I was like, oh, I mean, it hurt, but it didn't hurt me. You know, like it didn't, it didn't harm me. It was, I don't know if it was, I would say harder, but it was like more complicated because it's like, I didn't know where it was coming from or where like, like, who are you? Are you real? Are you like, there'd be all these suspicious things like people liking the same nine tweets, you know, over and over again. I'm like, why are they all liking the same nine tweets? And then I'd go to their page and it'd be like two followers. So you're like, is that even a real person? You know, but you start to feel a little crazy. Like, like I think staring too long at Twitter, honestly, I think it probably should be in the DSM. Yeah. But I also think it's hard because it's very easy to say Twitter is not the real world because obviously it's not. But if you're in media or in the literary world, uh, it is pretty close to the real world. It's pretty damn close. It's becoming the real world in a, in a weird alternate reality way. And one night I was really shaken and I had an argument with someone that I was with and he was saying to me, Twitter's not real. Shut it down. Twitter's not real. And he was getting kind of frustrated with me, I think because I was letting it in. And I understand that it's very difficult to see somebody engage in what feels to you like a bunch of LARPing role play and they're taking it seriously. But to me, it felt like I was watching peers and colleagues publicly, you know, scorn me. And I was my, but the best advice I was getting from people was don't engage. And I, I'm I'm not saying that glibly. I really think it was pretty good advice Mm -hmm. that my piece could speak for itself. But he was saying Twitter's not real. And I was saying, you don't understand, you don't get it. And, you know, I kind of think we're both right. Have you heard from other people, other writers, aspiring writers who say, I also am afraid to say what I think. And you've given me, uh, if not courage, at least some sense of solidarity. Yes. 
Yeah, that's been a really nice part of this. I got a ton of those. They mostly came in email and maybe like DM messages on Twitter or Instagram, some Facebook. It's very interesting, the delivery systems that people choose for that kind of stuff. They tend to, to go behind the curtain for, for good reason. They're, they're saying that they're scared and they, you know, so I, I got a lot, a lot of wonderful emails. Some of them weren't even writers. Um, a lot of them were saying, I experienced this and I'm, I'm a, I'm in the academy. I'm a nurse. I'm a police officer. I'm a, I'm a school teacher. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was um, incredibly, you know, is was, was a very interesting moment for me because it was a lot of like public scorn and private solidarity. And I kept feeling like I was in such a weird, like the mask of theater, right? You know, like one side is tragedy and one side is comedy where it was like Twitter was this like pain factory and everybody was like, like people were saying things like I'm literally shaking while I'm reading this. It's upset me so much. And this sickens me to my core. And you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. And then over in these other channels, well, pretty much everything, but Twitter, I was hearing you gave me hope. You gave me voice. I've been waiting for years to read something like that or wanting to write it myself thank you. I'm going to, I'm going to keep writing. And you know, that, that was just so wild, but it was also such a funhouse mirror, you know? Yeah. God, the pain factory, that would be a brilliant title for a book about Twitter. It I mean, it, su- it sums it up perfectly. Well, Sarah, now that you have uh, officially declared that you are going to write what you want to write, what are you going to write next? <sighs> Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, I have begun to suspect that I will write something more on this Brock Turner case. I don't know when or how, but I want to keep nudging there. I think there's an enormous amount that I think would be illuminating. Well, Sarah... This has been a really long conversation, a very complicated one and a difficult one. I, I, I'm sure it will be difficult for listeners in a variety of ways, but um, I'm really grateful to you for, for coming on and, and doing this because it, I think it's, it's important. Uh, it, it, I know you and I talked about this offline. Uh, yeah. It's going to get people upset uh, yeah. most likely, but I, I think it's worth it. So, um, Megan, I, I, I just want to, I just want to thank you too. for I just want to thank you for being willing to do this because what I have learned is that most people just don't know this case. And while we're seeing a lot of incuriosity bounced back at us on Twitter, I actually think people are deeply curious about this case. And there really hasn't been a forum for people to talk about this case in a way that is a little bit deeper. I think there's a lot of people that would be scared to do it. I really admire you both personally and professionally for being willing to do that and for taking the care with this conversation because I know it is a difficult one. And I want to thank anybody that did listen to it because I know that it's easy to to not have ears for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
it's kind of the opposite of our mission over here on this show. Stay and bless (laughs) you and bless you. All right. Well, Sarah, be well. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Megan. That was my conversation with writer Sarah Heppala. She's the author of the 2015 memoir, Blackout, and she's contributed to the New York Times, The Guardian, and Salon, where she has also been an editor. She's currently a writer at large at Texas Monthly. Speaking of Texas, and speaking of something we did not cover in this conversation, Sarah is also the creator and host of America's Girls, an eight-part, deeply reported podcast about the 50-year history and the political and cultural legacy of the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders. The podcast began rolling out late last year and is still very much alive uh, as some new scandals around the team's owner have erupted and continue to do so. Sarah is also at work on a memoir. This is The Unspeakable Podcast. Again, if you'd like to support the show, you can join our growing community of listeners on the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. To make a one-time donation in any amount, visit the show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com. Any and all support is very much appreciated. I'll be back soon with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.